from the Under Review and Blue Wire Hustle. This is Under Review Radio, a podcast on sports and writing. What's up? And welcome to another episode of Under Review Radio. My name is Terry Horstman, your gracious host for the show, and I am so grateful and thrilled and ecstatic, just all the way over the moon, to bring you this special episode with this special guest, Ross Gay. That's right, Ross Gay, one of my favorite writers ever, is here. So you may notice a few fanboying fanboying moments in our conversation, (laughs) and sorry, not sorry, Uh, Ross and I uh, get into topics such as tenderness, pickup basketball, his discovery of poetry, gardening, uh, Amiri Baraka, and Ross reads in a loving fashion a couple different Baraka poems for us. Just so many wonderful things. Um, We, of course, talked about his most recent book, Beholding, which will also be further discussed on next week's Friday Reads as a book club episode. So go pick up Beholding if you haven't devour it in one sitting. I promise you. More about Ross, he's the author of four books of poetry, in addition to Beholding Against Witch, Bringing the Shovel Down, and the Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, the winner of the 2015 National Book Critic Circle Award, and the 2016 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. And he also wrote a book of essays, which I love, called The Book of Delights, which was released by Algonquin Books in 2019. So thank you, listeners and supporters of The Under Review, so much for tuning in to this episode, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with the amazing Ross Gay. Hey, Ross. How's, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Sorry I'm late. Yeah, no worries. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, we met uh, we met briefly uh, at the at your last reading at the Loft in Minneapolis, which feels like a million uh, years ago at this point. But yeah, it's so it nice. Does, to... Yeah, for sure. I look at your pictures behind you, man. Oh, man. <laughs> thank you. you know, I had to. I think that was my pandemic project was you know uh, sprucing up the uh, home office since it was going to be <laughs> broadcasted on all these you know digital meetings. So yeah, I get to watch. Uh, Jordan and Pippin and the flu game and uh, AI uh, be- over, around my head. So I feel like I'm in good company always. <laughs> so that's from the flu game. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, uh, the illustration. I think Ryan Simpson is the name of the artist of uh, that great picture of Jordan sort of collapsing into Pippin's arms as he's uh, walking off the court. That's amazing. I didn't quite, I didn't quite know that. Um, I don't, didn't remember I didn't remember him collapsing into Pippin's arms. That's sort of a sweeter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm happy we're starting with this because I have uh, some questions about you know tenderness and uh, you know yes. among teammates and moments like that um, as well. But thank you uh, so much uh, for for joining me. I'm so excited to get into this, um, and I have a, a bunch of questions. Um, so we'll just get uh, get right into them. Um, and obviously, this is a uh, an interview uh, on a uh, in a issue and a podcast of a sports themed literary journal. Um, and I've read much of your work that uh, you know t- touches on uh, sports and just games and play and movement and uh, all kinds of great stuff. So I just want to ask or start sort of at the beginning and ask you uh, sort of what roles did writing and also sports play in uh, your childhood? And uh, was there a moment when it dawned on you that uh, these two passions were uh, two passions that can be in conversation with each other? You know, when I was little, I had nothing to do with writing. Um, I wasn't like a, you know, I was probably, I was like, a okay, I was just, school was easy for me until I was probably 12 or 13. And then there was some click, like with some, like, there was some moment in school where it was, I can't remember exactly when it was, probably so many things were going on, you know, some of it was probably like actually my body changing and hormonal, yeah. I don't know, stuff happening at home or, but there were, there were moments in my relationship to school and I still hold on to these moments that I realized if people were telling me to do shit, but they weren't explaining why I should want to learn a thing or do a thing, it did not, um, it, it did not convince me to do the thing or to have any interest in the thing. And 
So I can remember like right at a certain, it was kind of around that seventh, eighth grade where, where you actually had to kind of, for me, I had to kind of, you know, start thinking a little bit in school in mm -hmm. a different kind of way. It was kind of easy for me some of it back in the day, but then I started to be, I just started to be like, I don't, I don't care what, you know, right. and <laughs> so it was also, you know, probably like fifth, sixth, seventh grade around that same transition. I was, that was maybe one of the heights of my reading life um, as a kid. I was reading Power Man and Iron Fist comic books. I was, right. I liked comics and, and, but specifically I would every, I think they came out weekly, but they could have come out monthly. I can't remember, but I collected them all. But I read Power Man and Iron Fist like really devotedly for that period of time. And but then I got to, you know, whatever that age was. Um, and I was not reading in that way. But even though that I think of that, I was, uh, I was also deep into skateboarding, you know, when I kind of 12, when I turned around 12, 13, I got deep into skateboarding. So, so I was reading like Thrasher magazine and trans world magazine, like also pretty religiously. Um, it's so fun to answer these questions because they always become fuller. You know, the more right. you think of them, the more they become fuller. So, but I wasn't reading like what you would think of as like, I wasn't reading books, you know, and I yeah. wasn't reading, um, and I had no sort of interest in, or really, yeah, no interest in the idea of being a writer. It wasn't, it wasn't at all. It wasn't at all. And, you know, I, I was a sports guy. I wanted to be a professional football player. That's basically what I wanted to do. Yeah. And um, so I played, you know, basketball and football through high school. Then I played football in college and and kind of had designs on trying to figure out how to play football. Um, I went to a, a, a division one double A, which is like, you know, one A is the big schools. And then one double A is like, you know, they wish they were like good like that. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't and um but i still had designs after i graduated from high school i had or college i had what felt like a kind of um unsatisfactory college football career you know which is like ten thousand stories but <laughs> and i had designs on trying to figure out how to play afterwards like I, you know it's mm -hmm. all like all stuff and now that i'm like 25 years past it i'm like ah oh, man you're just working through stuff always right. just work stuff you know but anyway the how did your question go? Did you say the sort of intersection of the two? Yeah, yeah. And I actually can skip ahead a little bit because I was going to touch on uh, your uh, career as a collegiate football player later because you, you played at, at Lafayette College, right? Lafayette. Uh, and, and I read in a previous interview that you did that it was about sophomore year of college or so that you started discovering poetry or, uh, or considering poetry. What was that kind of like to, uh, I mean, I guess your role as a, a football player and a poet sort of emerged at at that time um so we can get get into i guess that that aspect of your career so were was ross the football player and ross the poet sort of in conversation with each other uh right away and what was the experience like of discovering that uh you were going to walk away from football dreams and pursue writing yeah you know it's um that's right. I mean, the the way that I think of it, and again, it's always more complicated, but one of the ways that I think of it is that in my second year of college, in a survey of American, like 20th century American poetry class, maybe, the professor, David Johnson, he must have been able to tell I wasn't engaged at all. And he gave me a, um, he assigned me a presentation on Amiri Baraka, um, the poet Amiri Baraka. And I mean, I was doing nothing in, in school. Um, I mean, I was writing papers for other people, but I, but I was doing nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing nothing on my own behalf for school. <laughs> and I was just like, I was just so blown away by this poet. And there was a poem in particular, it's called An Agony Is Now. And it just, um, it just, and if you want me to read it, I can read it. I actually have it. Actually, like, yeah, would you? That'd be amazing. Yeah. And and it, you know, the thing with Baraka, there's many things that have meant so much to me about Baraka. Um, among, among them, his changes through his life, you know, that he's just a writer who just changes, um, a writer and thinker in person who and watch, lets us watch him change. But he also is articulating 
a kind of um, relationship, you know, to, I went to college and it was like a, you know, it was like, I don't know, you know, it might be a college that these days cost $50,000 a year to go to, you know, back then it was like 22, $24,000, ton of money. And, you know, it was free for me because I played football, but I'd never been around like a bunch of people who had money like that. And I'd never been around, you know, a bunch of people who all drove kind of nice cars, that kind of thing, you know, and the football players at that place were by and large, the poor kids on campus. Um, and and all the black males on campus were football players and there's a few basketball players. And so there were all of these things that I was sort of encountering that were just, you know, making me um, um, full of rage, actually, you know, a really sort of um, not quite articulate rage, um, complicated rage that this poem to some, to some extent sort of helped me. And it was, kind of, it was kind of rage that was percolating my whole life, but it was, it was, it was kind of uh, a little bit boiling over. Right. <laughs> but this is called An Agony As Now. I'm inside someone who hates me. I look out from his eyes, smell what foul tunes come in to his breath, love his wretched women, slits in the metal for sun. Where my eyes sit turning at the cool air, the glance of light or hard flesh rubbed against me, a woman, a man, without shadow or voice or meaning. This is the enclosure, flesh, where innocence is a weapon, an abstraction, touch, not mine or yours. If you are the soul I had and abandoned when I was blind and had my enemies carry me as a dead man. If he is beautiful or pitied, it can be pain as now as all his flesh hurts me. It can be that or pain as when she ran from me into that forest or pain, the mind silver spiraled world against the sun higher than even old men thought God would be or pain and the other, the yes. Inside his books, his fingers, they are withered yellow flowers and were never beautiful. The yes. You will, lost soul, say beauty. Beauty practiced as the tree, the slow river, a white sun in its wet sentences, or the cold men in their gale, ecstasy, flesh or soul, the yes, their robe blown, their bowls empty, they chant at my heels, not at yours. Flesh or soul as corrupt, where the answer moves too quickly, where the God is a self after all. Cold air blown through narrow blind eyes, flesh, white hot metal, glows as the day with its sun. It is a human love I live inside, a bony skeleton you recognize as words or a simple feeling, but it has no feeling. As the metal is hot, it is not given to love. It burns the thing inside it, and that thing screams. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's a kind of amazing poem, I think, to think back of like a 19-year-old kid who is just, you know, kind of like thinking a ton, but like mm -hmm. not reading really. And to be, to that's a dense, complicated poem. It's still profoundly mysterious to me. Like, you know, I feel like I'll read that poem for the rest of my life and kind of, it'll keep changing meanings to me. But that a poem like that would be the thing to kind of turn on the, the engine of a kid and be like, after that, I was like, oh, I want to try to do what he's doing. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. I, I love that you're able to uh, sort of zero in on sort of what you mentioned, the click earlier. And uh, maybe that wasn't, you know, a night and day difference. But uh, I love that you're able to select one piece that sort of is pinpoints the moment where something changed in, in your mind and you're able to consider uh, poetry. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 It feels very lucky. And, and then to sort of be able to study his work and 
if we get later on, you know, the last poem, the book I was holding is his, it's a, his collected poems. And the last poem in that book is just beautiful. That might be a nice kind of thing to close with. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. We'll come, come back to that. Um, but uh, I, for sure, I obviously have to talk to you about another person who's had a lot of influence on you, uh, sort of one of the many subjects of your latest book, Beholding. And that is of course, Dr. J. Julius Irving. Um, and I love uh, so much about that book, but I also love that it starts with that quick note at the beginning, uh, sort of directed to readers of a particular age who, who may not know who Dr. J is. Um, and I have so many questions about this book, uh, but like, what kind of role did Dr. J's status as a hero of your childhood play in your approach to this poem? And is one of the intentions of the poem sort of uh, to preserve that sort of superhero childhood like awe that's really only possible to attach to sports figures or heroes when we're of you know that certain you know impressionable age i love that question yeah it, it's an interesting thing because i think i think the poem the poem at the beginning it's sort of like really i think introduces us to this way of thinking about you know you know you're with someone who's a basketball guy you know because you know my 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 favorite line in the poem might be yo remember sean kemp yes that might be my <laughs> i love that line so much yeah aside <laughs> and you know so it's sort of like it's sort of like a, a deep a deep student and a deep um um adorer of the game and um and it's funny though because that kind of that kind of familiarity and that kind of parlance and that kind of ease with the with the thing with the subject that I think that feels to me like um, the kind of you know uh, you know that yo remember Sean Kent that's a little bit like superhero-y, you yeah. know like yeah. but it's funny because Dr J though he was a kind of um, super heroic figure in a certain kind of way when I was a kid. Like, you know, if I was coming to consciousness about things, say, in like 1980, I was born in 1974. And so we moved to the Philadelphia area in 79. And then in 80, you know, when they, when they, 80, 81, I think they went to the finals. Um, I was, aw I was aware, you know, my dad was a basketball guy. So I was like aware of, of Doc, very aware. And he was also like, if you had, if you're even if you're a little kid, you know, probably I had a Dr. J t-shirt, you know, like any kid would, you know, like it was just like that. Um, and it is not too much at all to say that he was very much like Michael Jordan would be later, though there was not the kind of machinery of, you know, proliferating images in, mm -hmm. in the way that, that Michael Jordan sort of was came up with. Um, but, you know, he would be in commercials, you know, those uh, Converse commercials and like Spalding commercials, I guess, like, right. You know, he was just like, he was around and he was on, you know, we watched basketball. And so I got to see Dr. J and I have to say, if you watch any game that Dr. J plays in, it's funny. You can go watch any game. He will do three or four things that are like, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's just the way it is. You know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit now, you know, like you see, you know, John Morant to, you know, I've been looking at his highlights. It's a little bit like, man, that's not, that's not regular, you know, or, you know, or a lot of these folks, you know, but, but he was, I mean, he, it was like weird. Um, and so to come up as a little kid to, and to see this person as a kind of um, magician on the court um, was, there was a kind of way that he, that he, he held, holds or held that kind of place in my brain. That being said, in the poem, I feel like he's not, he's not at all super heroic. I feel like he's doing a move that is an actual impossibility. Uh -huh. He's doing something that's an actual impossibility. Um, but the way that the poem approaches, as I think about it now, I mean, um, but I could be wrong, the way that the poem approaches his particular moment of, of impossible flight and impossible genius, um, envisioning i sort of feel like the poem is doing is regarding that not as it's some other thing of than super than super heroic you know there's some way that and then i don't it's funny the question is such a great question because it makes me think though doc you know even when they were sort of doing the the whatever you call it for the book they were like a tribute to dr j and i'm like eh, it's not a tribute to dr j right it's a study <laughs> it's a study uh -huh. of one move that he did 
you know, it's a study of this. And then it goes into his background a little bit, but really it's, to me, it's a study of this impossible move that Dr. J did. So it doesn't, it doesn't. And like I said, I know like, you know, people don't, people don't write books where an image of, of a basketball player of Dr. J is like floating around throughout. It's a central guiding sort of site of meditation. So of course I understand it. Feeling is like, wait a second, you're telling me this is not, not a book about Dr. J. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, I'm like, it's not actually a book about Dr. J. Although I'm looking so close at Dr. J because Dr. J in a way is a kind of guide to the book, you know? Right. He's a, yeah. like looking at looking at this move as a kind of guide, you know. Well, in in several, one of my next questions about it is, it's almost as much as an ode or a tribute to sort of the the victim of his impossible flight, which was Mark Landsberger. <laughs> you you handle so so well, like so gently, because uh, now <laughs> just with the you know the culture of basketball suggests now when like someone gets dunked on or or embarrassed, we we're not very you know, gentle or uh, expressing admiration to those people where like, whenever I see someone get dunked on, I'm like the person who gets dunked on. I'm like, at least he tried oh, <laughs> and didn't just get out of oh, the way. And Landsberger's, you know, I love how it sort of keeps coming back to Landsberger and how he did all of the correct things that a, a good defender all. would do. And it <laughs> still didn't matter. <laughs> totally. He did it all. He was totally admirable. There's also this thing that I keep doing, you know, in that, like, I'm like, don't reduce, don't make land, you know, because this is a poem that's thinking hard about, you know, America and race and all this stuff. And mm -hmm. don't reduce Landsberger. This is about two dudes playing basketball. Like that, that's what this is. And Landsberger is not an allegory. He's not, he's not, you know, he's a dude, a six foot, nine inch dude with, or whatever, trying his best, you know, bummer. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> And then also, you know, the way, one of the ways that this poem originally started, it's funny, is that it starts off with a kind of long, a kind of reverie about a dream that I had with Kareem, you know? Mm -hmm. And Kareem was like at, at my high school and he was like being awarded something or other. And I'm telling Kareem, I like, I, and this is a true dream. And I'm like, <laughs> and I like go to Kareem and I wanna kind of, I'm like crying because I wanna, and I'm not sure why I'm crying. It's a yeah. little bit like, like a thank you crying, you know? Uh -huh. And he's kind of just like looking at me kind of softly and gently. And um, and in the poem, in, in the dream, I don't know if we ever end up talking, but um, I, in the poem, I kind of use that dream to introduce that I'm just saying, thank you for being there while Dr. J <laughs> made the best move in the history of basketball. <laughs> It didn't make the final cut, but it was a funny, like it was a fun digression that that was one yeah. version. I don't know if Kareem has ever been uh, thanked for that. So, so I, know, I, know. I, was, I would love I to hear his reaction to, to that. I know, it would not be his favorite thing. Um, <laughs> so are there, uh, just speaking of this being a sort of a, a study of, you know, Dr. J's move and him sort of serving as the guide, are there, are there any other I iconic plays either from childhood or just elsewhere in sports that may inspire a, a book length poem uh, slash study out of you? Yeah, great question. You know, you can tell from the book, I, I'm a big Iverson guy. Um, <laughs> I love Alan Iverson. Not everyone could tell from the book, but you probably can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Iverson's uh, hanging up on the wall behind me as a total coincidence. But when I was reading that, I was like, it's in the right spot. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, you know, I could easily see a kind of a book length study. Actually, speaking of Sean Kemp, you know, if you ever, if you ever are like me and want to watch like Sean Kemp's 100 Best Dunks. Yeah. <laughs> and there's one where it is, I mean, you know, it's so neat. Like this guy was such a beautiful ball player. And like he, he, he dunked so hard on this dude. And the dude like falls and gets up immediately and they immediately dap each other up. And the dude's like, damn, like right. good, good move. <laughs> and like, man, thanks, you know? And, and it's just this moment of like such tenderness, actually. Right. It's like the kind of a, an elevated moment where to me, it's like, you know, basketball is, you know, the, the beautiful move is made extra beautiful by the good, you know, contention, by the good, by the good sort of uh, defense. And this dude contended good. And but Sean Kemp was just a little higher and it didn't and it and it worked out for Sean Kemp. And they both kind of bounced up together and like almost 
embraced as a way of being like, we just did that. Yeah. We did that. I just made your thing more beautiful. And he's like, yo, man, you just made my thing more beautiful. For sure. Do you remember who the other player was? For that I can't. Dunk? He was okay. like, you know, big dude, yeah. like a 6'9", 6'10", kind of athletic dude. Right. Um, and he bounced right up. You know, there's the famous one of Sean Kemp Duncan and then like... And then pointing at... Yeah. Is that, is that Spreewell or... No, it's oh, so, I think it's I, for some reason I feel like that was the Warriors um, in that one. Oh uh, yeah, my classic be, Warriors. Well, yeah. I'll I'll find there's <laughs> it's not easy to find uh, a specific Sean Kemp posterization of another player, but we'll we'll find it and put a link to to both. But that's a that, another uh, you know question. Um, I'm kind of just skipping out, out of order, but uh, of the the list but um yeah, like i've heard you met anyone who's read uh you know interviews or s- sort of is familiar with their work has uh read you mention tenderness and write about uh tenderness um in moments that are either directly about sports or uh adjacent to sports and uh, we kind of just talked about this with kemp but sort of what is it about just the act of sports and you know competition and playing that make it such an effective storytelling medium for acts of tenderness? Mm. You know, it's a great question. I feel like, um, I feel like it might be, um, there's probably many reasons for that. I'm writing about this quite a bit right now. I'm writing about a little bit about the kind of playing college football and how so often what, so often the tenderness was born of a kind of, um training training in againstness so so often you know there was a kind of you know you had to you had to make an enemy and the enemy might be you know holy cross so the enemy might be bucknell or or army um and and from that kind of againstness was grown this kind of togetherness that sometimes looked like tenderness but you know i want to raise the question of like is it is it tenderness when it's born of againstness? And so often also that capacity for tenderness is, you know, this sort of thing, this sort of uh, enemy um, in, in say like football where I grew up or how I grew up learning football, which is also to say learning a certain kind of quote unquote masculinity um, was there was this other thing, a sort of persistent enemy. And that enemy would be something like um, the female, you know, or, or the queer, you know, there's a beautiful Eileen Miles essay that I'm trying to talk with and it's, and they say like, the woman, the queer and the oddly behaving man. Um, and that, that is the sort of figure I keep returning to in this essay as a, as a way, as a kind of persistent thing that um, in certain kinds of homosocial, um, like football locker room, for instance, um, as, as, as I experienced it, the kind of togetherness could often be, be being cultivated against those things. Um, and so I want to, I want to, you know, suggest that, that it needn't be, you know, I want to suggest, of course, that there's a, there's a more sort of, um, there's tenderness that is born of its own need, you know, not of its need against anything born of its own need. All that being said, I suppose there is there is a way that we sort of relate to competition and we think about competition as a kind of, uh, I'm just wondering here, as a kind of battle, mm-hmm. as a kind of battle. And there's probably something very seductive to us about the way that in the midst of battle, you know, people, people do these, soft things for each other or they do these things you know but i'm really um i'm really suspicious of that actually you know i'm really suspicious of that i understand the the pull of it too like i'm emotionally drawn by you know like nothing moves me more than when i think of like when i tore my mcl against colgate and you know mean colgate you know and <laughs> And I can picture, and I, you know, and I like, you know, because I'm like a tough guy, like I jump up immediately and my legs fucking flopping around. <laughs> and like my buddy Glenn is on the sideline running out to the punt return team and he's like, or punt cover team and he's punt return team. And he's screaming to get me off, the, to get people out there to help me. And, you know, that whole thing of like, ah, you know, and it's like, 
that it was, it is so tender. It melts my heart. And, and, and it's, you know, and, and when I picture it, you know, I picture it in this, it's like dusty and it's like all these sort of, you know, all the, the sort of long history of like battle is sort of in the, my imagination, my historical imagination of this stupid fucking event, of yeah. little football event, <laughs> you know, but, but I think those stories sort of maybe cultivate in us a certain kind of ability to be moved in, you know, moved, especially, you know, because it's so violent and it's so, and there's these glimmers, but, but like I said, I want to sort of, I want to, I want to wonder about that. And actually I, I want to wonder about it in a way like this too, like those games where there's refs and there's coaches and there's uh, a kind of definitive winner and loser in a certain kind of way, like those aren't games that I'm actually interested in at all anymore you know i look i mean look i watch like i'll probably later today i'll watch a little house of highlights want to see what you know, yep. John did or what fucking steph curry did like i'm gonna do that you know <laughs> of course <laughs> but pickup basketball uh-huh. is a completely different phenomenon and like like a game without refs and without coaches which is to say a game without the structures the hierarchical structures um, the policing structures, the sort of legislative structures, um, but that are instead, um, you know, if you were to talk about certain different kinds of governance that are horizontal, where every time a new five gets on the court, the rules actually change because not everyone calls a foul the same way. You know, for those right. of you who don't know basketball, pick up basketball like that. In pick up basketball, you know, there's a game going on and then there's five people on the side. You have to assemble that five, you know, in any number of ways. You go to any different place and they're going to say it may be a little different. But, you know, you might say who's next, who's got next, who's yeah. last next, you know, my next. And then that team gets on mm-hmm. after then and the winner stays on the court and then that team gets on and then you play. And then the winner stays on the court and it goes on forever. So among the things that you learn in the process of doing that is that, yeah, every single time, every new um, gathering of players, every new assemblage of players constitutes a new, um, not only a new set, not a new game, but it's a new set of rules. It's a new, it changes. The foul has changed. Like how hard you can, you can check some hand check someone has changed. Uh, what, what, you know, all the things that are, you know, there are some things that are static, like out of bounds is pretty much out of bounds. What, you know, if you're playing with ones and twos, that's pretty much static. But, but not always. Um, and, but also, you know, for the most part, there are some of these things that, that remain sort of static. But the real nuts and bolts of the game, which is like the interpersonal dynamic shifty stuff, changes every single time because there's not, there's not a God, you know? Uh-huh. And there are no gods. And not only that, in that game, you always have to practice being invited in, you know, and pick up basketball. Because part of the way of you get on that five that's on the sideline is you say, hey, can I play? Or you say, however you say it, will you play? Can I get on? Can I get in? You got a spot. Da, 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 da. And then if you're the one who has the team, you have, to be a, a, you have to be a host. You have to learn how to invite people in. You know, it's not about, it's not about, and you know, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on. It's just human, you know. But it's but all of these lessons are being learned and pick up basketball un sort of you know un you know like that we are the ones sort of determining the flow and movement and organization of this game, and in those moments in that kind of setting, I feel like I see the most astonishing tenderness that I believe in wholeheartedly. Like I don't I don't believe in it. I don't believe that it's like a kind of um, um, a moment of, of reprieve from this other kind of brutality. I be, believe like the whole thing is a kind of practice at tenderness. And so, you know, like when there are, you know, I can even think of like shit, like, you know, me, like one time being, you know, 26 years old and like there was a breakaway and someone like, you know, I was coming back on defense and I was flying down the court and I went to block the shot and I flew, whoo, boom, right into this <laughs> behind the behind the thing. And I hit myself right between my legs. I did not hit my, you know, I did not hit my testicles, thank God. <laughs> or else I would not have gotten up. Right. But, you know, I am who I am and boom, I stood right up. 
And everyone, everyone on the court, there was probably like a three game wait was like, no. <laughs> and of course they all thought you know, I hit my match, you know, yeah. and <laughs> I, did it. I did it, but they were, they wouldn't let the game go on until right. I had a few minutes to sort of be like, hang on, like, just see, just see, just wait, you know. This is like a full game. It was a busy game. And it was like, you know, one of the best courts and like all of that. And there was a wait. And and people were like, no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, and then they kind of could tell, okay, okay, he's okay. And then, right. you know, but it was really, it might've been like three or four minutes of people being like, nah, wait, just wait. And they're just kind of shooting at the other end. And they're like, nah, nah, just wait. And like checking. <laughs> <laughs> all right, he looks okay. Yeah. you know like that is one instance or another instance that is I, I just love it it's so beautiful to me <clears throat> you know one of the things with those courts is that they're they're they can be um intergenerational you know oh yeah and so like elders you know and i was kind of moving from being you know probably 23 when i started playing at the court and by the time i was done i was probably 33 so i got to watch kids who were like you know 13 14 being brought to the court by their elders by their dads or their uncles or their you know people in the neighborhood bringing them showing them how to play and by the time they were done some of these kids were like division one basketball players or or maybe weren't like playing in college but they were just great you know basketball players in the neighborhood or whatever and i remember um there was this moment where there was a there was a kind of a he was sort of like one of the senior figures at the court and he was, there was Marshall and he played kind of high level ball. I can remember Texas Tech or someplace like that. And, but he was, you know, like by the time I got there, he was probably in his mid thirties or something. And his handle was ridiculous. He's, he's written up in one of these books that talks about street ball in different cities. <laughs> just a little passage on him. His handle was stupid. And, and just a very like super, super beautiful sound basketball player could do all, like you just could never take the ball from this dude, you know? Right. And, um, but he had a son um, who was big kid. Like Marshall was probably about six feet tall. His son was like six, five, you know, and wow. nice player, really nice player. And there was another kid um, who was, was Marshall's son, Marshall's son's name Marshall too. It was, that kid was, you know, like, um, more like a six one kind of real shifty guard. And, and, and Marshall's son was also a guard, but like kind of a silky big kid. And anyway, whatever, something was going on. It was a good game. They were getting, they were getting a little hot and something happened and Marsh, Marshall's son punched this kid in the face, pow. Kid kind of stumbled and dad grabbed both of the kids, marched them out of the court, just outside of the court, starts talking. Everything stops. And now this is like, this is like, you know, I don't know. It's, there were probably five games wait. It was like one of those mornings. And it was just like the kind of thing where if, if there's a con contest, on, like if someone's contesting a call and it's taking a long time, which is just, again, it's one of the ways we negotiate on the court, pick up, you got, you have to fucking argue about a call sometimes, you know, that's just what it is. And it was the kind of thing where, if that was what was going on, you'd hear people on the sideline be like, come on, man, come right. on. Like, we got to play. It's time. You know, I got, <laughs> you know, I got to go. I got to go to work. <laughs> Let me get it in. But no one said a word. No one said a word. And Marshall was outside of that court with these kids who are, you know, 16, whatever, 17 little guys, big, big little guys. Right. <laughs> and he's like holding them and he's touching them. And they're like this whole, it was this whole beautiful choreographed, you know, I mean, it wasn't choreographed, but it looked like a beautiful dance and they're like touching him and he's touching them and this and that. And, and, um, and it was just him showing them how to be. And it wasn't like a big deal. It wasn't like these kids then hated each other or anything. It wasn't a big goddamn deal. It's like something happened. The adult, you know, because that's what those faces can be. The elder grabbed him, said, look, I know what happened, but that can't happen like that. And let me explain to you why. And it was this moment of like the most, the tenderest moment, the most profound love, like what it means to be an elder. He was sort of modeling for all of us what it means to be an elder. And we all who really wanted to play were understanding. Obviously, we understood what was happening because we didn't respond to it at all except to be like something good is happening something worthwhile is happening over there you know um 
the evidence of which I'm sure both of those kids is some, they might not even remember it, but it's in their bodies. But the evidence of which is that at least one person was like, oh, that guy was teaching me how to be a person, you know, yeah. you know. Yeah, and it's just, uh, I'm obviously going to segue this into asking you about your essay in Lit Hub. Have, have I even told you yet about the courts I've loved, which is if I had to choose one piece of your work as my favorite, that would probably probably take the cake. But uh, cool, yeah, yeah, it's just so interesting because, yeah, pick up basketball. It's just a totally different you know ecosystem of from any other sort of structure of sports. Uh, You're talking a little bit about uh, againstness and enemies, uh, but in pickup you can play against a team, uh, lose and make an enemy of who you're playing with uh, someone who calls like a bullshit foul or someone you argued with, but how the, <clears throat> the fives can shake out. It's not a consistent thing because the total number of people ebbs and flows. So that person you're against and making an enemy of could be your teammate two games Boom. from now. Yeah. Boom. Nailed it. You nailed it. Yeah. That's the right. thing that I wasn't thinking about. That's it. It, it yeah. makes no sense. It makes no, like you might not like someone and that just happens. Like we just sometimes don't like each other, uh -huh. but it makes no sense to hold a kind of, like the way, like, you know, the bulls and the pistons, it was like, Oh, so like when, you know, when, when they're being sweet to each other, it's really because of fucking mean Isaiah Thomas, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. that's like, man, hope that. that's, that's just like, whatever, but, but you're right. And pickup, it's like, you're not, you're not always playing against the same people and the people that you think of like as being like, oh, that's my nemesis. Your nemesis very well might be feeding you the ball next, you know. Your exactly, nemesis yeah. Be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, it does teach you how, how to be a person in that way. And anyone who plays, you know, pick up extensively with, you know, with like friends you've had for a while, it's sort of, even if it's the last game of the day, there can be the most intense argument ever. Or someone takes a cheap shot or something like that. But it's just remarkable to me how quickly those arguments can be solved totally that's such a good you know it's funny because i'm i have this essay about um that i'm working on about i mean i have this book coming out and but i have this essay all about basketball and i sort of talk about basketball pick up basketball it's one of the places where we study how we we it's a kind of moment of the abolition of private property actually that's sort of what i what okay. i'm going to talk and what you just said, though, kind of deepens my argument. I think it helps my argument um, because I did not say that. I said the things that I would that I said. Maybe I say a couple other things, but I forgot that it also it does not allow for the kind of persistent antagonisms that we imagine that separate us. Like if you know the sort of idea of like you're over here and I'm over there, that might sort of encourage walls and stuff. Bas you know, pick up basketball. It's like it doesn't make any sense because we're all going to eventually be together. You know, yeah. this is how it goes. Like, you know? Yeah. And I wish we would even talk about more how even in a competition and organized setting is you can make it about against this or make it your enemy, but we can't exist without each other. You know, that's that's, it. I, I, I love one. Like I, I think about this whenever I watch like tennis, like yeah. they're playing against each other, but it's still so clearly that they're working together to create this tennis match and yeah 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 so there's a there's a thing that me and you know i've been playing a lot of ball lately um like just kind of one-on-one -on -one workouts i like to do workouts i like to practice we talk about practice um, <laughs> <laughs> and um but we'll play like full court one-on-one -on -one, me and this kid you i used to play with this kid named noah davis um who, who i was writing essays back and forth with we're kind of probably working on something right now um but this this other kid, Bernardo, we play. And with with Noah, Noah's a good ball player. He played like a division two basketball. And we were we were, I don't know what, but we would play full court one-on-one. -on -one. Um and we would play, you know, quick games up to five, you know, which sometimes is a quick game, but if you're not making shots, it's it's a a long game. And then we play like five or six of those games. But now I have and toward the end of our playing together, we played together for like two and a half years. Toward the end of that, I sort of suggested, well, what if we, is there a way not to keep score? And it wasn't only because he, he won, you know, three and a half out of the five. He, you know, he averaged 3.5 points and I averaged 1.5. So, you know, yeah. I won like, I won like two out of every six, you know? <laughs> um, it was more because there was some kind of like, you know, some kind of thing that was being cultivated 
by the this particular mode of competition that I was actually suspicious of. Yeah. You know, and I was like, well, what would it mean just as a practice? What would it mean if periodically we just played like combined points to 10, you know? So instead of like the first one to five, right. that we just play to 10 points together, like would that diminish the kind of how hard we went? Would that would that change? I don't think it I don't think it needs to. But now with this kid Bernardo, um, that's all we do. You, not all we do. Every once in a while we'll play like a just a regular with first the first one to a certain number wins. But for the most part, we just play like yesterday we worked out and we played up to 100 baskets made you know it's a shorter court this is a little bit shorter court so it wasn't <laughs> see i perked up when you said full court one-on-one like i just got exhausted thinking about it <laughs> so it's a good game yeah and then you yeah. can make it faster if you're like depending you know you can make it faster by doing it like um we have this one beautiful short court that we play on but on this other court we played on yesterday it's 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 kind of like a three quarter size court. If you make it, you only get five dribbles to get your shot off. Okay. Yeah. So you can't dilly dally. You got to get up the court um, and get a shot up. And it'll take you like with defense, it'll take you four baskets to get to the rim. Um, so you kind of got to, you know, you're hustling. You get your wind up. Yeah, yep. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, well, I I love uh, this topic of. Uh, pick up basketball and you can basically, you know, relate it to anything. Um, and uh, something that you do, you know, in this essay, I think one of the courts you mentioned is the old gym at uh, Carlo College and you describe it as like a greenhouse in your memory. And anyone yeah. familiar with your work knows you also write about you know, gardening <laughs> a lot and uh, basketball and gardening are two subjects that come up a lot. And I just want to know what are the similarities of between basketball and gardening uh, for you? Uh, rereading some of the stuff, the fig tree by Palumbo growing back also made me uh, think of this so are those two things that are often uh in conversation with you and in your work i love that question yeah it's um i don't often think of it but i can kind of very quickly i can very quickly make at least a couple of analogies and one is that you know there's a way it's, it's funny because it's almost like the way that the meditation on dr j's move in that poem it's a kind of patience. It's a kind of practice of patience and looking very slowly, you know, like intensely and slowly and steadily and with curiosity. That's a kind of mode of witness, I think, that I'm trying to wonder about and practice in that poem. And in the garden, you know, I think, I think this is a case, you know, that gardening encourages a kind of non-impositional witness. A kind of being withness. Um, you know, there's obviously modes of gardening where you just like mow everything down and you blast the shit into the soil and you and you monocrop and that's that's a you know you just grow one thing and you know like that's that's kind of part of the destruction of the land is is certain modes of of uh, of relating to to the land. Um, but I think you know, really good loving gardeners are, are kind of, are really curious, are patient, are asking like what, are asking what wants to grow where and trying to pay attention. And they might be paying attention by seeing how much light is in a place or like if water gathers or like what is growing there already. You're like, oh, if there's a lot of this growing there, maybe it's already kind of a heavily calcified or calcium area. Maybe this might work or this might not work or or what, what things grow in tandem together, like all of these communities in a garden. Um, and, I, and I feel like, so that's one thing, I feel like that kind of very slow, patient witness is a, is a way you be a gardener. You know, it's a, that feels like a constant practice of being a gardener. And, and I just wanna say that it feels like that's a little bit what I'm trying to do with that, with that move, which is not about basketball, that's actually about looking and about writing maybe. But about basketball, I feel like that mode of being patient and trying curious with the garden, I feel feel like that's a practice, you know, I feel like it's a practice. It's something that you have to cultivate by by doing and doing again and doing again and doing again. And ideally having other people show you how they do it and doing it with them again and again and again. And playing ball, for me anyway, 
is a thing that you practice and you don't only practice your 15 footer, but you practice how to make the game as meaningful to you as possible. So like part of the practice might be after you shoot all of your, you know, warm up with 150, you know, 15 footers, it might be that part of the practice is thinking, well, how do we play this game and cultivate, let this game help us cultivate what we really want to cultivate. So maybe we should think differently about what we do with points, you know? Maybe that's like one of the things that we got to do, you know, maybe that's, that might be a kind of analogous, I mean, the practice, both things, both, both endeavors require practice and repetition and study and all of that. Um, but that, that kind of asking the court what it, what it is that we're actually supposed to learn is very much like asking the garden very much what it is we're supposed to learn, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's like, you got to listen on both things, you know. For sure. <clears throat> I love that. And in, in this essay, too, you mentioned uh, a bit similar things like that about uh, Seeger Court in uh, uh, specifically, um, and that being sort of the first place you saw a court as a, a site of care and a ball and not guarding in this instance as, you know, practices of care. Um, was there something, you know, specific about the particular that particular court? that helped you realize this? Was it just maybe that was the right moment in time, but was also, I'm wondering if, you know, there's something in the setting, you know, like the surface, uh, the rims, uh, the backboard, the smell, um, things like that. Yeah, it's a great question. It's like, it was, um, I think I was of an age, I was like 23, 24, when I was, I was starting to think in a different kind of way. You know, I had just mm -hmm. finished, you know, college and then grad school and um, my first grad school. And I was sort of, you know, prime to be thinking differently about what I had spent so much of my, my life thinking about, I think, mm -hmm. you know, which is, which was not exactly how sports and tenderness coincide. Right. Uh, I think I was also reading different stuff, you know. Um, I think it was also that that court was this little bastion in a, in a, it was just like, you know, there was a, it was a very kind of, it, it was like a, it was, it's, you know, a lot of the courts where I'd grown up were, they were a little bit tucked away. You know, I grew up kind of just north of Philadelphia. So the courts would be, they wouldn't be like right in the middle of a city block. You know, they would be, you drive to the court or something mm -hmm. and there'd be a parking lot and, you know, courts, which by the way, like in retrospect, I see, oh, there was all of this profound tenderness going on that I wasn't yet quite aware of, or I didn't know to articulate it as such, you know, but, but I think being 23 and 24 and really starting to sort of think at hard about what it means, you know, the very beginning lifelong endeavor to think hard about what it means to be um, like a loving um, individual or a loving, a loving sort of participant in something. I saw that this court, which was busy as hell, right in the middle, smack dab in the middle of right on Lombard and 10th, like busy, always people walking by, you know, always people walking by to the store, walking by to work, whatever. It had a kind of um, a theatrical element to it because there was a fence along, there is a fence along the sidewalk so that people would stop and watch, you know. Um, there's that. Um, you know, this was like a court where it was like, you know, three or four blocks from the projects. And so folks would be coming up, coming up to play, but it would be automatic that people were coming. And because the kids live right in the, right in the, right nearby, you know, I'll never forget Gerald, like telling me like, he's the one who, who's banging on the doors and be like, come on, time to go play <laughs> with these kids, you know, who were like, 14 or something and it's 7 30 in the morning when we started and you know it's hard for a 14 year old to wake up at 7 30 <laughs> but gerald who's one of the elders would be like come on let's go play it's time to play and um which is not like it's time to play it's like i'm taking care of you now you know i'm taking care of you i'm showing you how to do this thing um and it maybe I was at a certain age where I was able to sort of witness um, where I was able to witness these modes of care 
that I had also been, because I always had that too. I always had, there was always some older dude being like, come on, this is how you do it. You know, older person, but in ball, like usually an older dude being like, come on, this is how you do it. Um, even like in the apartments when I was little, like there was a kid named Pee Wee who was just a little bit older, who was probably like, he was a teenager, as we said. So if I was nine years old, Pee Wee might hang around a little bit and show me how to play, you know? Um, or when I was in high school, I had a coach named Derek, Coach Derek, and he would pick me and Ronnie up um, from Burger King. We both worked at Burger King. My dad was the manager of that Burger King. And, um, and, and uh, we were the two black kids on the team at the time, I think. And Derek, black coach. And Derek brought us on to his men's league team. And we were playing at a men's league over in Abington, Pennsylvania at the Y. And we got our asses beat, man. We got, we just got, <laughs> oh my God, we just got, <laughs> we got shown what it means to be a kind of grown up basketball player. Mm-hmm. And Coach Derek was the one showing us what that meant. And, you know, it meant that probably his team wasn't as good as it could have been if he got two other guys, like a grown ups, you know, but he was bringing us along, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there was a certain kind of, I was, I was sort of, my eyes were sort of open to this method of pedagogy I, I i call it and it's kind of like come along pedagogy like come on come on I got, I got this thing to show you and might you might love it you know and or maybe more to the point um sometimes you know it might um it might change your life you know it might change your life you know for some of us it might this might get you an education you know this might get you an education um and also, this is like this really beautiful mode of being in community that I want you to that I want you to witness, I want you to participate in, and I want you to learn how to do so that you can do the same thing when you're my age and there's a 13-year-old in your neighborhood to be like, come on, come on, I got to show you this beautiful thing. Whether it's a basketball court or whether it's a garden or whether it's like, you know, like learn how to fix bikes or whatever. Um, it's just like, it became very evident to me that one of the sites of, this kind of intergenerational um, teaching and care, basketball courts are really beautiful um, places to study it. And I had been brought up in them too, but I didn't know I didn't know what was happening often. And looking back, then I'm like, oh yeah, there's all those there's all those beloved teachers, you know, that right. I had. Yeah, it, and it kind of mirrors like the writing community in. Yeah, that way. Just I feel feel like so many people I talked to there was and you know, it's a little bit different because writing is in itself an act of solitude. But it seems like I haven't thought of it in those terms before. But the come along pedagogy is sort of like, that's the best way to cure imposter syndrome, (laughs) which so many of us struggle with. It's like, that's right. Yes, it's like, no, I had so many people who gave, you know, permission or granted you know the uh you know access to to you can do this thing too it's you know it's not anything you don't have to get a certain degree or a certificate to be able to do this you just get to do it that's right that's right yeah and it's kind of the ways that in our solitude we're always we're always kind of in the presence of those people are with us like we're in our solitude we're actually right in our minds or they're right in our mouths and they're ready to come out for sure um well i could talk basketball writing like this forever (laughs) it's been such a fun conversation Uh, but i don't want to take up your whole day so i feel feel like we should close with the the reading of the next baraka poem um Uh, but i am before we get to that i am required by the law of the under review uh since you're a sixers guy to ask you what you think of the current ben simmons situation (laughs) I know, I know almost nothing about it. Okay, and, I'm happy to hear that actually. <laughs> and I, I want to tell you a thing. <laughs> and, and it's this, and I forgot to say that um, among my heroes is, is um, and actually most influential basketball players is maybe Moses Malone. Okay. Moses Malone, who was a great, for those of you who do not know, go look him up, but he was a great um, player for the Houston Rockets. He was an early out of high school player. Um, he was a great player for the Houston Rockets um, in the late 70s. Then he came to the Sixers in, in the, the 83 season when, when they won the title. And he was, he may have won the MVP that year, but I think he won three MVPs. So he's one of like, you know, there's like, you know, Larry Bird might also have three MVPs, you know, or, in, you know, it's like the greats, the greats. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Magic might have three, magic might have four, you know, it's that kind of thing. And, but Moses came and I really encourage everyone to go look at Moses Malone's game. Um, because in a certain kind of way, Moses was an amazing athlete. Like, and part of his athleticism actually was um, he had an engine that wouldn't stop. He had a kind of desire to get the ball and a desire. And he, and he was also kind of a physicist. Like he knew where balls were going, like Rodman in that way. Like he knew where balls were going before anyone else did. So you will see in some of the highlights, like, like rebounding highlights, <laughs> you got to see, because for whatever reason, a lot of them are against the, the Celtics. He always like tooled up the Celtics and Larry Bird would be there. And he'd be like, God damn it. <laughs> Moses Malone would get like three or four offensive rebounds and score. And, and, Parrish would be there, Mikhail would be there, Bird yeah. would be there. So all these giants would be there and they couldn't do a damn thing about it, you know? But I love Moses Malone. I loved him. And my game, <laughs> I'm 6'4". I'm not like 6'10", like Moses was, you know? But my game was kind of like Moses's, you know? Like when I see, I'm like, oh my God, like that ugly ass shot he just made. I'm like, oh yeah, I think I probably was given permission the way we're talking about this to play like this, to be like a little bit like what I'm going to be is bananas on the, um, on the boards. Like I'm going to be a, a player who matters because I'm going to scoop, I'm going to scoop up every possession, like any loose ball, that's going to be my thing. Like whatever my touch might not be great, but I, I will like get us to be able to stay on the court because I'm going to get some loose balls or offensive rebounds or defensive rebounds or whatever. But Moses, but Moses also scored his ass off. Like there's a great story. I think he tells it maybe in his Hall of Fame enshrinement speech. It might be him saying it, but someone else might have told the story on him. But he said like Billy Cunningham, who was the coach for the Sixers, he had drawn up a play, like a really important play. And Andrew Tony, another great basketball player who didn't have a long career because he had foot injuries and the, the bullshit fucking media like dogged him for that. They didn't believe him. He had foot injuries. Um, and he, he, um, Tony was supposed to run a play and it wasn't going to go directly to Moses. And, and so they got out of the court and Tony's like, so uh, some Moses said something like, you know, don't worry about what co coach said, just give me the ball. <laughs> that is so, such a great story. Anyway, Moses was amazing. He was just an amazing player. And the reason I, my, I'm interested, I hope the Sixers do well, but I know they're never going to win. And right. partly they're never going to win because they traded Moses Malone. Right. And I fundamentally believe it just came to me in the last year or two when I was restudying that Kawhi shot, that impossible shot from the corner. Yep. Impossible. Impossible. <laughs> impossible shot where the Sixers were very close to like making it to the, to the next level. I was like, oh, that was because they traded Moses Malone. And until they do a proper, a proper, you know, ritual of apology, you know, and it, it's going to have to involve every single person in the city. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're never going to win. So, you know, like to me, like the Ben Simmons thing or whatever, whoever comes, whoever goes, it's all like a soap opera. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the only thing that matters to me is that, you know, and I love Barkley too and all that stuff, but like, the only thing that matters to me is that in like 85 or whatever, when Moses hurt his eye, they traded him away, man. He's the one who got them that championship and they traded him away. And so, yeah, I heard there's something going with Ben Simmons, but. Right. I'm so happy. Well, you're, <laughs> you're talking to a Timberwolves fan. So the I, coming uh, to the reality of we're never going to win is constantly on my mind. And I'm actually, right. I'm working on. Uh, study right now of if the Timberwolves are actually cursed, like if there's been some witchcraft, there's a couple of times uh, someone has cursed the team publicly, uh, most recently by Ja Rule. Uh, but oh. I, I kind of think like we we traded Kevin Garnett when he didn't want to be traded. So I think the oh. ritual of apology oh, yeah. needs to take place. And I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, you know, something probably related to the original sin, in my opinion, was trading stuff on Marbury or creating a culture that Marbury wanted out of, whatever. But yeah. anyway, yeah. that's another uh, <laughs> three-hour-long conversation. So. Yes, those are good questions. Yeah. Those are real things. For sure. We'll, <laughs> we'll figure it out someday. Um, but yeah, let's um, segue to uh, closing um, with uh, another another reading from, uh, from Baraka. Yeah. And this is the last poem in his book, SOS. Okay. Um, 
and it's called Ballad Air and Fire, and it's for Sylvia or Amina. There is music sometimes in lonely shadows, blue, blue music sometimes, purple music, black music, red music. But these are left from crowds of people listening and singing from generation to generation. All the civilizations humans have built speed us up. We look like ants. Our whole lives lived in an inch or two. And those few seconds that we breathe in that incredible speed, blurs of sight and sound, the wind's theories. So for us to have been together, even for this moment, profound like a leaf blown in the wind, to have been together and known you, and despite our pain, to have grasped much of what joy exists, accompanied by the ring and peal of your romantic laughter, is what it was about, really. Life, loving someone, and struggling. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for your time, Ross. This was so fun. Uh, I could talk <laughs> basketball and writing all day. So this was a privilege. Um, thank you. Thank you again for taking the time to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Let's do it again. For sure. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> okay. Take care. Have a yep. good one. Yep, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you again to the delightful Ross Gay uh, for joining me on this episode of Under Review Radio. This was such a sincere thrill for me, and I'm just glad I held it together the whole time. Well, almost the whole time. <laughs> uh, remember to pick up a copy of Beholding in preparation for next week's Friday Reads episode of the Under Review. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and share the show with a friend. Your support means the world. Thank you again to my dear listeners and readers of the Under Review. We'll see you again next week. 